Hey everybody, welcome to episode three. Um, it's Scott Leckie here from Oneness World and Jointly Venturing. Um, together here today with Ashley Bloom. And today we're going to have a conversation about cryptocurrencies. Uh, many of you have heard about Bitcoin, of course, but there's also thousands of other cryptocurrencies out there. And what these currencies actually mean for the world of finance, what they mean for potentially for public financing of socially oriented endeavors, um, their plus sides, their downsides, um, and what does the future hold when it comes to this new form of uh, exchange. Um, today, Bitcoin, uh, the most well-known of the cryptocurrencies, um, has reached a 12-month low, having lost more than 80% of its value since its peak um, early in the year, which is around 20,000 US dollars for one Bitcoin. Um, and there's been, of course, a lot of controversy surrounding cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular, um, with some people touting its wonders and the technology, blockchain, etc., that backs it up. Um, its ability to be used um, for perhaps, we could say, nefarious endeavors, um, and then its possibilities uh, for being used for very positive endeavors. So we're going to talk just briefly about how could Bitcoin, how could cryptocurrencies, generally speaking, um, fit into new visions of how we, as the human race, decide to organize ourselves politically. Uh, for that is really the main theme of this podcast, uh, Jointly Venturing. Um, we all live on planet Earth. We often forget that, but it's true. We are all 100% dependent upon planet Earth, and yet we continue as one species of humans to divide ourselves into nationalities into races, into genders, into classes, into citizenship groups, and so on and so forth. A lot of division going on, not enough unity going on. And the basic premise, of course, of jointly venturing is that if we are all sharing this one planet together, would it not be advantageous ultimately to all of us and to our children and subsequent generations beyond theirs to begin to organize, uh, organize ourselves politically on the basis of our shared humanity and to envisage what that might look like. That's really the ultimate aim of this podcast. How could the world be made better by a politics which is no longer based on borders and separateness and perceived differences, but rather a politics based on the things that we all share? Because at our core, we all know that the things that we all share are infinitely larger in number than the things that divide us. It might not seem like that when we look at the world the way it is today politically. Uh, the number of authoritarian leaders that are taking control of countries, the continued threat and use of force against people and peoples and nations by so many uh, leaders across the world, and so on and so forth. It's not very difficult to find bad news. But part of our function with this podcast is also to point out to the positive things that are going on in the world and uh, 
really try to begin a debate and a discussion globally without necessarily offering answers, but to at least get people thinking about how we might do things better. How might we expand democracy? How might we expand uh, prosperity? How might we expand the role that's played currently by the United Nations and, and transform it into something much more close to a global federation of nations? Uh, a number of people have commented on the difficulties of doing this, and 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 even even Yuval Noah Hariri in his recent book, Twenty One Questions for the Twenty First Century, despite being so progressive in so many of his thoughts, um, he explicitly notes that the idea even of having a world government comprised of of equal nation states is not only something highly unlikely, but also something highly undesirable. So, you know, we would we would perhaps be at odds with that point of view and and hopefully we'll be able to talk to Mr. Hariri at some point about that perspective, but that is a perspective shared by many. Um and we want instead to open up the possibilities of considering really grand visions of what the world could be. What are the obstacles to those and can we really imagine a future for planet Earth in in 100 years or 500 years? a thousand years that doesn't involve some sort of unified political framework in which all of us are equals, whether we're from Brazil or Russia or Australia, Botswana um, and everywhere else. So into that mix comes the issue of the economy, of course, currencies, trade and exchange, business, and ultimately now in recent years, the question of cryptocurrencies, new ways of looking at the question of exchange, value, and ultimately an alternative to money as we have known it. So with that, um, Ashley, maybe you can give us a quick overview in very simple terms of what cryptocurrencies are and where you see them going in the future. Cool. Thanks for having me, Scott, by the way. Hello, everyone. Uh, I see a cryptocurrency as essentially a digital form of currency. Currency currency now would be like the US dollar or Australian dollar or any other currency of another sovereign nation. And the computer code underlying that is completely digital. It has no physical form. You could, in theory, hide it in physical form, but that would not be its purest form. It is based on mathematics and the rules that run it and that run the software behind it uh, that regulates how it's issued and how you can verify that transactions have happened, who can verify transactions have happened, and it operates completely separately to all governments and central banks. That, to me, is a pure distilled version of what a cryptocurrency is. There are many other definitions that people have. and I Can, think can you explain this sure. concept of Bitcoin mining? Like, How does that yeah. actually physically work, and how does that differ from traditional currencies that we're all used to? Sure. Okay. So in real simple terms, yeah, keep it, keep it simple. Well, okay. Bitcoin mining uh, is basically the process of a bunch of computer power being controlled by like a server run by someone that's called a node. Um, a lot of these people are volunteers and they're sort of hobbyists who are really passionate about the potential for this sort of thing, but a particular kind of node, like a system like that, that has a lot of computing power would be called a mining node. It runs the Bitcoin software. And what it's essentially doing is it takes 
what was coded in at the very beginning and never changes, which is the rules that every 10 minutes, a whole bunch of transactions on that, on that network are going to be put into a package called a block. The block will be regulated in how often it will be created and broadcast out to the network. And the miner is the one that wins that block, wins the right to, to put all those transactions in a box called a block. And then it will link back to the previous block and that will form a blockchain, a chain of blocks. So what the miner then gets is a certain amount of Bitcoin as a reward for driving that computing power. But there are lots of miners out there that are all fighting every time or sort of collaborative. It's like collaboration meets competition. They're trying to all solve the mathematical problem needed to wrap up those transactions. And it's really intricate, so I don't want to get into the weeds with it. We could in the future if that was ever interesting to people. Um, but yeah, so what they're trying to do, and that actually effectively secures the network because so much computing power costs a lot of electricity to run, which right now is not sustainable, right? And like, I'm, I'm a man who's conscious of that. Um, but you know, the, I believe green energy is becoming mandatory because electricity prices are ballooning everywhere, almost everywhere in the world. So it makes more and more sense to be even economically, rationally setting up completely green power. And I believe that is definitely the future of this space, no matter what thrives. So there's a direct link. Hmm. I think this is something that probably most people don't oh, realize. Yeah, there's sure. a direct link between the actual use of electricity and energy and the ability to mine bitcoins. Totally. I, I don't know. Some people are really aware of that. A lot of, most are not, I would say. I mean, it does... The, the proof-of-work work algorithm that drives Bitcoin, that is basically the evidence of each collective block mined on this chain of all these blocks. And the block, again, is a, bunch, a whole bunch of transactions roughly every 10 minutes will be put into this form, stored on a distributed ledger that anyone on the internet can access if they have the right website to see it or if they have a bit of technical savvy. And there's tons of um, significant businesses now that are you know directly piped into this. It's There are, I think, almost 10,000 nodes, like computer systems that are driving computing power that are running this network effectively so it's very decentralized in control and there only needs to be you know one or two of them always going for it to work so it's pretty hard to kill so there's uh there's a, an apparent limit that's been set on the number of bitcoin that will ever be in existence can you explain that sure uh so it's distinct from what is often called by bitcoin people or blockchain people fiat currencies being us dollar australian dollar um, Venezuelan Bolivar, anything like that. They the issuance of those currencies is not bound by any fixed rules. They have a target rate that they'll often shoot for. The governments of these countries each year they'll shoot for an inflation rate of I don't know maybe two point something percent, one point something percent. And inflation just means that the total the the total value of the currency on issue will decrease by that percentage because of how much they print. So if you had a million um, Australian dollars in, in issuance. This is a hypothetical because there's way more than that. And then you added like two percent, then you you know you'd have you know a million and then twenty thousand on top of that, so a million twenty thousand dollars. And that would mean that if as long as the economy didn't grow or get smaller, the value of each Australian dollar would be smaller. But if the economy grew faster than that percentage, then the dollars would still be worth more, even though the effective value of each dollar is less. I hope that makes sense. And so with a cryptocurrency, what's different, or Bitcoin specifically, because many cryptocurrencies don't operate in an honest, mathematically proven way. With, with Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. 
that's like the most sacrosanct thing in the whole story. There's so much other stuff up for debate and we could get into that if it's relevant. Um, yeah, so 21 million will ever be issued. Right now, um, the schedule of issuance uh, is at a point of every, roughly every 10 minutes they issue 12.5 Bitcoins to the party that mines the block. How many Bitcoins are there in existence today? About 17.3 million. Okay, so we're And close. so it, it decreases mm-hmm. um, over time. It started as 50 being mined for every block uh, at the beginning, and then it halves roughly every four years. Uh, yep. And that when when will we reach this 21 million mark? Uh, the year 2140 something. Oh, okay. So but, still a long way off. Yeah, but uh-huh. it will be like the inflation rate of Bitcoin now is, it's you know, that that's the way it can be thought of. It's a known inflation rate with Bitcoin. So in the current terms, I, I haven't done the math recently, but 12.5, roughly, you know, 10 minutes, like six blocks an hour, roughly 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, whatever that works out to, that's roughly the amount of blocks per year. Multiply that by uh, 12.5 Bitcoins, then you work out how many are going to be issued this year. And that the percentage that is of the total that's out there right now would be the inflation rate. And it will just keep on decreasing. So yeah, the what it's called the minor reward or the block reward is going to decrease. And it's all about economic incentives, the way the thing's built. In the future, what they hope will incentivize people to secure the network, which is what Bitcoin is doing, um, by giving that reward to the miners to run all this computing power. Because it's very hard to attack the validity and truth of that network. You know, it's We don't know, we don't really know necessarily from country to country whether we can trust that the government will be benevolent to the people. And it's, we've seen many cases in history of of governments not doing that, and this an autocrat gets in and starts really screwing with the way things are issued, and they can hold their people to ransom. So the hope is really with something like Bitcoin, or whatever might transcend it at one point, that hopefully we will have something that's free from corruptibility. So have you seen Bitcoin being utilized in countries that are becoming increasingly oppressive or suffering severe economic downturns as an alternative to the national currency yeah yeah that's that's a that's a really good question and it's it's definitely happening happening a lot in the last year i think that the prominence in the cultural zeitgeist was very very nascent until about the last one or one and a half or two years so many citizens of countries that have consistently been oppressed were not aware that they had this option so the uptake was very slow but in the last roughly one to one and a half years in turkey iran venezuela and I feel like there's one other nation that's really in dire straits right now that's been Syria, adopting. Perhaps? I don't know if Syria's been adopting this heavily. And and a lot of the governments don't want this to happen. So what what's happening in those countries is some of them go into hyperinflation and that's just mismanagement of the economy. And is also actually often planned, I believe, by by governments because they want to steal the wealth from the people and they can do that by being the ones who print the money. And there's there's some pretty amazing quotes that could be referenced around that. And it's, it's happened consistently. I mean, the life of a fiat currency, uh, like a dollar or bolivar or anything like that, or a Turkish lira, they they're, they average out at like only a few decades, really. And this whole system is quite new, as you brought up, Scott, before we started speaking. In about 1972, the connection of all, all national currencies was backed by gold and hard, hard money commodities like gold that have got proven reserves. We know what it's worth. And now it's arbitrary. It's based on pure trust. And unfortunately, a lot of humans are corruptible and a lot of humans in power are not integralists. So that's the sort of situation we find ourselves in. So yes, sorry, it's a bit of a long answer, but 
yeah, there, there's definitely flight. And I, over 10% of citizens have some exposure to Bitcoin specifically in both Turkey and Venezuela right now, which is crazy, like incredibly amazing to me. And that's so as long I, as they have know, a computer connection, essentially, they have access to the internet, they can acquire Bitcoin. Is that essentially how yeah, it would work in those countries? There, there would be a means or there would be people within those countries who have the trust of certain communities that can, can handle that. And they would have their own services with custody, maybe insurance. I don't, I'm not, I haven't gone to Turkey or Venezuela on a um, mission to kind of understand how things are happening on the ground there. And there are, there's also internet censorship in places like Iran. So it's very hard to see what comes out. Like you can't get Twitter, you can't get Facebook, even though obviously those platforms are also censored in their own way. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it really would take only um, someone trusted within a community to have internet access. Even on a mobile phone, you wouldn't need a laptop or anything like that. There are many wallets, so to speak, that can be set up, be heavily encrypted and protected from nuisance and, and, see, and seizure by governments and any other party, any corporation. And they're completely free to use. By, and, and the software is open source, like Thousands of developers around the world can audit the legitimacy of these projects, and so word travels fast. And you, you know, there are many scams. There have been many scams, but um, usually not at the level of the wallet. I've never heard of like a, a software-based wallet that protects someone's crypto assets that's been an outright scam. And they are very heavily self-policing. Pretty altruistic community, I would say, for the most part. I've met a few people in it who've started um, pretty prominent, like Bitcoin wallet companies in particular. Yeah. So what about the fact that uh, the value of Bitcoins vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar is down 80% now from its peak? I mean, what happened to the people in the countries you mentioned who may have bought Bitcoin when it was worth $10,000 or $20,000 per coin, and now it's down around the 4000 level? Um, what do you have to say about that? Well, I would say that Timing can be really harsh if you're thinking in one-year cycles or two-year cycles for uh, a highly volatile emergent paradigm through like the, the view of currency. Uh, most people I know in the space have lost a lot of crypto wealth, of everyone really. I mean, there's, there could be no one unless they were short in, in some sort of market against Bitcoin and other crypto assets. So I think that you know that's challenging, but that challenging and possibly horrible for some people. But even if they been living in Venezuela, if they had bought Bitcoin uh, near the peak, they would have lost more money holding their currency than Bitcoin's gone down. I mean, Bitcoin's gone down, it's lost four-fifths of its value roughly uh, to today versus its absolute high, which was a very brief period, by the way. I mean, people Mm. would need to have been quite unlucky, even though there were a lot of people entering at that time. Um, Yeah, I mean, the Venezuelan currency is down like 99% in that much time, Mm. not 80%, Mm. you know, so... More than ninety, I think it's like ninety nine point five. It's a lot, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's quite as bad in Turkey. But I would say, you know, if they're holding it and they, they, you know, like we could, I, I, I feel sadness for people who are really in a hard economic position. If, if say they were in Turkey and they've lost more on Bitcoin and they put everything into it to try to get away from how screwed their economy is and how, um, how controlling their leader is. Uh, that, that's terrible, but if they bought it for a reason and there's a way for them to hold on to it and there's a way for them to spend it and protect their nest egg, then I can't be sure about where price is going, but I think that they bought it for a reason and they should hold on to it then because the market, unless the whole thing fails, which is of course possible, uh, they should have bought it for a reason. They should have had a conviction around that. I'm not telling them that they need to be an expert because like 
doesn't matter how much I know. I, I don't know where price is going tomorrow. I don't think anyone really, really knows. There's just so many competing interests and possibilities. Uh, but I, I would say if you believed in it, you should hold on to it because you, know, you don't want to sell when you've just lost a whole bunch of money. You want to you want to sell at the highs, and it's unfortunate they got in at a real recent high, you know. And maybe it takes years, but if they if there's any way people can afford it, if they believe in it, they should hold on to it. Do you see cryptocurrencies as replacing traditional currencies as time goes on, or will this just be a brief historical blip? I, I so a lot of the time, people who are pretty pro cryptocurrencies, like I probably sit in that camp in general. But I, I think that a lot of the people I've been around are very they're so sure that it will be the future of money and it will be all money that there's no alternative. I I don't agree with that. I I believe it will be dependent on like whether there's some sort of new world order that's unified and that and then I think certain cryptocurrencies have the potential to be part of that unification which is a which is a holistic thing it's not just currency that's just one aspect of it and if that to whatever extent that arises which is something I definitely I believe we will both fight for as much as we can the unification of humanity in many different ways through our own vehicles and uh, for change I mean for you like as an educator a human rights pioneer um, a writer of like law, I mean, that can protect people. I mean, that's really, really important. But there, there are so many fights that are good fights. What, to whatever extent humanity is able to be galvanized and activated in that direction, then great. You know, I think that cryptocurrencies are probably the best way right now, and maybe the evolution of the current cryptocurrencies, if Bitcoin can't evolve in the way it needs to for humanity, that that is the extent to which it will be valuable to me. But if nation states retain enormous power and there's very little um, integral and unifi- unifying energy and practical possibility, and the states would rather oppress people at large and authoritarian leaders expand even further and we get into resource wars, etc., oh, we're, we're really screwed, you know? And I don't think the cryptocurrencies will take off heavily, even though there will always be dissidents. Like, I don't want it to... It's either going to be a dissident thing if we end up being oppressed in the future or the world goes to shit, or it's going to be pretty significant, I would say, in whatever form it evolves into. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, one of the other issues that we are going to focus on, um, both at Oneness World and here on the podcast, is the whole question of tax havens mm. and the ability of largely wealthy people to essentially hide their assets in tax havens around the world, of which there are still dozens in place. Mm. Um and essentially keep them out of reach of the tax authorities in the country where they are domiciled. Um, if you read the most recent literature on this question, the amount of revenue, tax, potential tax revenue, that is excluded from the tax authorities in the world, uh, the numbers are truly staggering, uh, in, in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm. Money that could be used, for instance, to end homelessness as we know it on the planet today mm. that could upgrade all slums on the planet that could give free education to literally millions upon millions of people and so on and so forth. So wealthy people, the billionaire class, the 1% and certainly large multinational corporations have become extremely deft at, um, continuing to utilize, um, tax havens through shell company structures and a whole range of other methods that they use to keep their money out of reach. Now, part of that obviously stems from the ability to retain a level of secrecy. 
um, and lack of transparency, which makes it more 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 and more difficult for tax authorities to to get at these legitimate resources that should be belong to the state and not to the individual. Um, however, a growing number of countries are beginning to band together and make agreements aimed at reducing and ultimately ending um, the idea and the physical reality of tax havens. That's still going to take a long time, but there is a growing realization within the financial sector that this should no longer be allowed, that there should no longer be um, tax shelters either, countries where corporate entities base themselves because of the low tax rate there, um, et cetera, et cetera. So part of taxation policy obviously hinges on the issue of transparency and the inability of the taxpayer to, to be secretive about their finances. Mm. And, you know, some countries such as Norway and perhaps Sweden, handful of others actually publish and make public every single person's income in that country every year. So you wow. can look and see exactly how much Johnny Jones made last year, how much tax they paid, etc. And corporations um, as well. Um, I presume so. Yeah, I'm not certain about the corporate side Trust in Norway strategies. and other countries. Um, but measures like that make it increasingly difficult for people to hide their money. Now, back to the question of, mm. of cryptocurrencies. Um, if we're aiming to construct a world whereby uh, tax evasion and tax avoidance are no longer possible because of transparency associated with financial matters, um, could not then cryptocurrencies be used in a nefarious way to circumvent those efforts? And if, if it could, um, how can it be regulated so that it, it does not become a new version of, of a tax haven? Cool question. Uh, there's probably two parts I'd want to answer around that. Thank you, Scott. Um, I'm seeing I'm a bit quiet, so I'm going to talk up. So one thing that's interesting to me is that it's seen that the, the money that is definitely, definitely should be paid, with, like the fair share by corporations, trust foundations, um, certain charities as well that are, that are out of place or not effective in what they do. Um, it should be in the hands of the state. I would love to agree with that. However, states sponsor every single war that goes on as well. It's not every state, it's just certain states. So I have a fundamental opposition to roughly, in the US, I think it's like 4% of the budget goes to war, effectively. Uh, of oh, GDP. it would be higher than that. It, Maybe it might GDP, be a bit higher yeah, right The budget, now. it would be much higher Of the budget, it would be higher. Yeah, I think it's under 10, though. But I mean, it's been higher in what's in like Cold War and... And World War Two and so on, uh, so that that is like barbaric to me, and I, I just can't support that. So I think you know it's nice to try to put things in somewhat black and white terms, where yes, there there are definitely tax evaders and definitely people who they're they're incredible at accumulating resource, but they're really in their own world and they're not that interested in engaging with the wider ecology. That for me is a big problem. Actually, is one of my closest personal missions is to get to people, just a few really powerful people like that, and help them see more if they want to see more. I'm not enlightened. I don't know everything. I just feel that I have an interesting world, interesting life, and I know how much joy can come from having a mark on the world. And those people, some of them have got the potential to have an enormous beneficial mark on the world. 
So that that's a huge personal mission of mine. I think those people who are so good at playing the game, so good at using exactly like they they have all the best advisors, lawyers, whatever, to avoid anything. If there's any loophole that exists in this world, they're going to find it, and their paradigm is one of winning and accumulating. And so that's that's their that's their sweet spot. That's what they're amazing at. I mean, it's not an accident they're holding billions in wealth. Some of these people. So I think what needs to happen is that people need to try to get to those people because while while things change. I'm not necessarily into the states. The states collaboratively getting together and taking that money and then misspending a lot of it because the efficiency of spending of most governments is utterly disgraceful. I mean, any friend of mine who's worked in government has recounted that to me. That's the anecdotal level. But beyond that, any friend of friend, I don't think I've ever met anybody who said to me, "Oh, your governments are spending efficiently in this country." Like it's it's just not a thing. I, I think most human beings believe that who are a thinking person. And so it's a bit of a challenge. It's obviously not ideal um, to to in- introduce some sort of like uh, intervention in the market that says, well, you know, every company, no matter what, even if you've, your effective tax rate is like 2% or whatever, you need to pay a, a wealth tax. I mean, I'd love to see that. I think that would be really good. I think a land tax, a universal land tax would be really good as well because these people, these people, these bodies, these organizations that take up land are also... They're not draining resource, but they are occupying the earth and they owe the earth something for that, I believe. Everyone who's a property holder to whatever extent. So those are sort of like some of the broad themes. I mean, I feel like I missed one part of the question that I that I should be answering as well. How cryptocurrencies aid in nefarious um, evasion? I would say, like I'm speaking only of Bitcoin because there are over you know 1,000 arguably cryptocurrencies. So it's a bit hard to go through them all and in this life. <laughs> and most of them are pretty shoddy i think in their in how solid and sound and trustworthy they are um bitcoin is very very increasingly hard to use for nefarious purposes because there is the pseudo it used to be quite anonymous but what has happened over time is that every single instance of kyc being know your customer um or anti-money laundering um requirements anytime like a trading, like an exchange where people trade their cryptocurrency on, or um, like a, a third-party custodian. There's a company called Coinbase worth about twenty billion dollars that's got tens of millions of clients holding Bitcoin, Ethereum, which is the second most prominent crypto asset, um, and a whole bunch of others. I think they probably list about five or six instruments right now, and it's insured, and they've you know they're backed by huge investors, so it's sort of a bit more reliable, even though it's got a greater fee to get into the market for people. So every time that a person who controls a Bitcoin wallet interacts with such a body, they need to be giving their passport and other such details as required, depending on whether they're an individual or a company, to prove who they are. And over time, this forms a pattern that can be scoured by third-party security companies, consulting companies. There's one right now called Chainalysis that's partnering with governments, partnering with the biggest exchanges. And the days of being able to use something like Bitcoin for nefarious purposes are just very quickly disappearing there are other things that exist there's a few currencies one is called monero and that is a far more anonymous currency so that is getting used far more now apparently by people who are trying to evade the law in some manner terrorism financing money laundering um you know drug dealing whatever whatever all those sorts of things so i would say that bitcoin is not a good option but to whatever extent the um creators of such currencies like monero and other things um, are able to continue those projects anonymously, there's absolutely no way that eventually that some of these things are going to be, going to be detected. But 
the people on the other side who are trying to catch these evaders are also going to do a good job. I, I think it's, it's hard to avoid, though, because wherever there's been code in this world, there, and an, an, anonymity, there, there's been a potential to hide and to create things mm. and give them to people with no accountability. And then to clone them, um, you know, you can clone software pretty easily if it's open source and accessible to the people. So that's a challenge. But I would, sorry. So how about the real world today? So there's yeah. 29 million or so people that have that have cryptocurrencies in their possession. There, I think I read I, recently. There is somewhere between 25 and 30 million Bitcoin wallets that are off mm-hmm. outside of companies like Coinbase. Coinbase is a bit of a giant in the industry in that they have at least 40 million customers that have, they control all the wallets of their customers in-house and they're all insured under lock and key. And of individual creators of Bitcoin wallets, I think it's between 25 and 30 million in the world. So that's roughly the size of things now. Other people are very, maybe not hobbyist, but kind of, you know, like a a good common person who's just interested in having some exposure to that asset. And, And of those, how many do you think actually, well, you can probably not answer this question with any accuracy, but oh, what's right. your sense? Do you think a lot of people have actually paid tax on any gains they would have made on Bitcoin or other crypto investments? Or mm. do you think they've just not done that? Some people, depending on where they live, they'll be watching to see the way the laws unfold. It will change a lot in many different countries. I mean, if people haven't exposed their their passport and government IDs or anything like that to exchanges or and they or they haven't taken money out or they've moved it around. I, I think for small small sorts of players it would be really, really hard to police and not cost effective. Um, I don't know how common it is. It's just it's hard to say, really. I mean I, I don't really have any like the only thing you could know from country but to country. But legally, is, I mean they're meant to pay, right? I mean I suppose if somebody makes it's just like any other investment. If you make money on investment then mm. you pay Tax based on the dividends or the return of that investment if you happen to sell it in that year. If it's right? designated as property. So in Australia, it's considered property, but it has previously almost been considered a currency. It used to be double taxed as well as a commodity. Um, it was a total mess and all the companies that were doing custody for people got out of Australia and now that now some of them are back because they've kind of the government got rid of that two years ago. Are there any countries that um, have tax authorities that have specific staff members responsible for developing policies or implementing policies on the taxation of cryptocurrencies? I don't know if there's specific staff members within the bodies. Uh, I'd imagine there's definitely new divisions in the US. That's the most litigious country in the world in terms of um, catching their citizens, uh, evading tax. I would say in the last year, given the price has gone down the last financial year since most countries treat June 30 as the end of their financial year, uh, it's like not like a lot of people lost money, so it's the policing of it would not be as. Have heavy. you ever heard of t- of people writing off losses on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Bitcoin I've, losses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, on have their a, tax I, have forms. A, I have a friend in the room who can honestly say he's writing off a Bitcoin loss. I mean, and that's accepted loss. by the authorities. Yeah, yeah, right. it, mm-hmm. yeah. It works. I mean, in Australia, that's that's a thing. It's a real thing, and I mean, it's hard to speak of lots of countries. There are some now that are crypto havens. In that, if you are a citizen of that country or your business position is is established there and you and you run your acquisition of crypto assets through that business only, not you as a person, but through the business, foundation, trust, whatever, uh, then if it's designated a currency, then 
that's even though there's exposure. I mean, Australian dollars go up and down in value. We don't pay tax on that, right, against the US dollar. Mm -hmm. So if we do everything domestically within Australia, then yeah, okay, cool. You know, it's gone up or down in value, but you don't. There's no tax benefit or disbenefit to that. So it's funny that with something that's a cryptocurrency, because it's volatile, it's seen as something you can make money on or lose money on, which is true, like anything else. So, I mean, in other countries, you can sometimes legally pay no tax, or in New Zealand, you don't pay capital gains tax if cryptocurrencies were property. So it's all it's all what it's based on. Is it a commodity? Is it a currency? Or is it property? And in the US, mm -hmm. every relevant body, the CFTC for trading, the SEC for securities law, and there's another there's another really important body, the IRS for for taxation. They all, in their own way, trying to make claims and and they're jostling with each other as to like how they should police different crypto assets. So that's the most developed um, thing to look at in terms mm -hmm. of where regulation, compliance, taxation, etc. are going and trade and trading safety and things like that. Uh, super interesting space, I would say. But other countries are generally less developed, but it is very quickly changing. So it, let's imagine we had a, um, uh, a quantum leap in human consciousness in the coming years and, and ever larger number of, of fellow human beings out there decided it would be advantageous to uh, come together in some sort of global federation, um, far, far advanced over where we're at now with simply having a United Nations and an occasional General Assembly, more into the format of having a shared uh, government in which all of us had a stake. Um, how specifically do you think cryptocurrencies would fall into that uh, system? If at all. Gotcha. Uh, when you say a stake, do you mean people would have ownership of well, like decision-making, like voting, global governance? Every every person over the age of 16, potentially, or 18, um, would be able to vote on a whole range of measures. Um, that's, you know, the di direct democracy side of the equation. And then the remainder of the issues would be decided by a global parliament comprised of a certain number of delegates from from all corners of the earth. Um, obviously, there's an important point to make here. Mm. This does not imply in any way that people have to give up their culture or their sense of belonging to a particular area um, or even their citizenship of a particular country. I mean, all of us already are parts of our community or our neighborhood. All of us are part, subsequently, of of our village or our town or our suburb. We're then part of a particular state, let's say within a country with a physical, with a uh, federal system. And then we're nationals of that given country. Mm -hmm. So all we're actually doing is just adding a, adding a, a step, layer. adding a layer. Um, and all of us can exist very easily with these layers now in, in a completely non-contradictory way. And simultaneously, be a member of your village, a member of your state, and a member of your country, um, and, and and have a legal status associated with all of those. So mm. we're really only going one level up, and we're going one level up because we simply think it's more appropriate, it will be better, it will lead to less conflict, less war, more fairness, more equality, more democracy, more freedom, ultimately, uh, down the road. Uh, it'll be a long pathway to get there, but that's that's what we're positing here as a, as a possible way to consider, you know, organizing ourselves. So having that caveat in mind, um, 
perhaps when we reach that stage, we might just continue with the current uh, currency-based financial system that we have, where the primary currency is the U.S. dollar and their subsequent you know, currencies such as the euro and such as the yuan and such as, you know, Australian dollar, Swiss franc, etc. Or maybe, maybe it's more appropriate to then think about having a truly global currency that matches the global polity in which we are all a part. And, you know, it seems to me as a very much of a novice about matters relating to cryptocurrency that there's at least some potential there to use this form of technology as a way to um, facilitate that process. Sure. So that, yeah, really, I like where you're coming from, Scott. So yeah, I think you're really onto it. The, there are a lot of experiments happening right now among the cryptocurrencies that exist. Uh, Bitcoin has been around for almost 10 years now and pretty much everything else. There were earlier experiments that didn't work because they either screwed up the economic incentives or the creators ended up getting, um, arrested by governments who didn't like the way they were doing things. But since then, there have been lots of um, new currencies that have come off the side of Bitcoin or another project called Ethereum uh, emerged quite separately to Bitcoin and had the idea of instead of being starting as just everyday cash for people, digital cash for people that could be used in any country very quickly and rolled out with anyone to anyone with an internet connection, the opposite was that they thought, how about we make a decentralized computer, just like a decentralized currency? That was what Ethereum was going to be. And we're going to start with a, a way that all everything programmed in Ethereum world is going to, you can use any programming language, it's going to be totally agnostic of whatever language, culture, whatever. And we're going to build software from that place. So th that paradigm is interesting. And then since then, it's, there's been an explosion of projects that have emerged some are really focused on how do we give voting rights to people? And there's these niche projects. There's one in Australia called Horizon State. I don't know how it's going right now. There's another one called My Vote uh, that's getting really prominent and being adopted. I think even India might have used it recently, yeah, for an election. Um, so there's a lot of experiments going on right now. I think what it's going to take to to really draw a line in the sand and say, yeah, let's add this layer, let's, let's start doing that, is that there is already a lot of non-government, well, slight government adoption, and adventurous governments are going for it. Let's try governance based on a blockchain or based on an alternative technology to a blockchain. And I think that's really interesting. I, I'm not totally sure whether it's going to happen or not or how it's going to happen, but I think we're in the very early testing stage now. And it looks really positive. It's just going to take the, the governance of these um, digital currencies or digital frameworks maybe is a better way to see them for the sake of governance for the people, distributed among the people fairly, um, there's, there's a f one more point actually I should make is that actually the biggest problem is faked votes in a lot of elections. If a currency is sound, a digital currency is sound and properly encrypted and properly broadcast out to the network, it would be, and with proper authentication of what is someone's identity, not to put them in a box or whatever, but if they have a national identity, if it's all marked and, and set up correctly, there should be no way to, to fake the vote to vote for a dead person. And that, this stuff has happened in elections all over the world. So that's very promising. I think that there could really be something there and it's already being tested. So yeah, right. I'd love to yeah. come back to you on that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we already trust in parts of the world where, you know, the majority of people have them, which is increasingly everywhere. Uh, we already trust our phones for banking purposes, right? That, that trust came about almost instantaneously. We've, 
only had iPhones in existence for a decade. Mm. And yet virtually everywhere in the world, people do their banking, their most, you know, potentially risky endeavor, um, using a form of technology and, and hardware and software that by and large is reasonably foolproof. I mean, there's some exceptions, but by and large people trust it, people use it. So What's the why not, why not use that very same vehicle for voting and use it as a promotion tool for greater democracy, greater di direct democracy. Hmm. Why not potentially use it for other forms of uh, financial transactions? Why not use it also ultimately as a tool that essentially everyone everywhere is using all the time that again, makes that point crystal clear that we're all essentially in this together. We're all sharing the same space on planet Earth. All of us are of equal value and equal worth, none better or worse than the other. That's the basic premise of, of this podcast and of, of thinking that tries to put new ideas out there. So, Ashley, thank you very much for that very interesting discussion today about cryptocurrencies. Um, the next podcast will probably address uh, issues related to taxation, mm. how to close tax loopholes, how to close tax havens, how to better regulate international corporations so that the money that is out there can be actually collected in the way it should and be used to solve some of the ongoing and increasingly solvable um, global problems. Uh, focusing particularly on housing and homelessness issues. So thanks again, Ashley. Um, let us know what you think about this podcast. Sign up for it. Think about all the things you have in common with everyone that you encountered today. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks.